Welcome to Brainstorm, Decoding Depression, where we will dig into discussions about mood disorders. We are here to change the way we think and talk about depression in an accessible, approachable way with a leading expert in the field. No topic is off limits. Coming to you from Dallas, Texas, this is Brainstorm. The opinions expressed are our own and do not reflect those of UT Southwestern, the O'Donnell Brain Institute, the UT system, or the state. Hello to all of our listeners, and thanks for tuning in for this episode of Brainstorm, Decoding Depression. I'm Katherine Huff, and today we will be talking all about transcranial magnetic stimulation, known as TMS for short. We have received a lot of listener questions specifically about TMS that we'll be sure to answer within this episode, so stay tuned. As a reminder, if you have listener questions, comments, or suggestions for future episode topics, please email decodingdepressionpodcast at utsouthwestern.edu. I am here with Dr. Madhukar Trivedi, the founding director of the CDRC and the brains behind our programs, as well as Dr. Andy Siz and Dr. Russell Toll, two of our leading scientists. Dr. Andy Siz, we're so happy to have you here. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background? Thanks, Catherine. Great to be here as well. Um, so I'm Andy Sis, a psychiatrist as well as a researcher. I spend some of my time seeing patients, but also spending time uh, researching depression, basic biology, and biologic questions about it, as well as understanding and developing new treatments like TMS. Fantastic. Well, we're really looking forward to this discussion. And Dr. Toll, what about you? Tell us about your background and how you got into this profession. Hey, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I... Uh... I'm a non-traditional path uh, to this profession. I, I call myself the accidental neuroscientist because I began as a, a tank commander and an infantry uh, commander in the Iraq war in uh, 2006 to 2008 timeframe. And after that, I was a, a casualty officer. So one of the, the duties to that, aside from you know, the, the, the terrible procedure of knocking on doors and informing families of the worst is that you also handle the administrative care of your unit severely wounded. So that meant I spent a lot of time in the uh, the halls of uh, Walter Reed and Brook Army Medical Center, and it was, you know, going through those halls during you know the, the height of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars that I really uh, began to take notice that our doctors and our nurses were were doing an outstanding job, and they cared so much, and were doing the best they could with the equipment that they had to work with. Just uh, it, it could it could very much be improved, in my opinion. So that was my motivation to uh, transfer to the reserves, get to grad school and see if I couldn't do something about it. And, uh, you know, eight years later, I found myself in a, uh, in a neuroscience neuromodulation lab, uh, working on solutions for uh, PTSD and depression, especially in vets. Fantastic. Well, we really appreciate your service to our country and your continued service in the mental health field. Excited to hear from you on this episode. So it's clear that TMS is generating a lot of interest for our listeners who want to know more about what this is, how it works, and why it is so promising as a treatment. And as Dr. Toll explains, as a brain mapping tool. So I'm very excited to speak with you all about this and get some good information out. Let's get down to the basics first. Dr. Trevetti, can you explain to us what treatments uh, options are already available for depression and how TMS fits into the treatment plan? So currently we have a lot of in, uh, treatments available for depression, 
two mainstays are medications and psychotherapy. In the medications, people know about Prozac and Zoloft, et cetera, things that work through the neurotransmitters, norepinephrine and serotonin. And for about 30 years, we've had those antidepressants and recently new antidepressants with different mechanisms like ketamine have started coming on the market. And therefore, we now have many options for medications. The second group is psychotherapies, cognitive behavior therapy people have heard about or behavioral activation is another range of treatments. There is also other options like exercise and a number of other non-pharmacological treatments. And over the last 10 years, the transmagnetic stimulation has gained a lot of attention and we'll be talking about it today. We should also not forget other things like electroconvulsive therapy that works. And so the big challenge for us in depression is twofold. One is those treatments that we currently have available are not delivered to the best of its capacity. So that's one of the aspects of the work we do at the center. And the second part is there are precise treatments for different subgroups of patients. And that's where I think increasingly transmagnetic stimulation is going to fit in where certain patients probably benefit most from transmagnetic stimulation as opposed to medications or psychotherapy. Fantastic. So let's dive in a little bit more to uh, TMS as a treatment option. Dr. Siz, can you explain what TMS stands for and what it's used for? Sure. So TMS is an acronym. Uh, it stands for transcranial magnetic stimulation. Sometimes you'll hear slight variations of this acronym like RTMS, um, R stands for repetitive. Uh, when we use TMS as a treatment, it's pretty much always repetitive. So using the word repetitive is a little redundant. Um, you also might hear slight variations like TBS, or, which is a specific type of TMS called data burst, or sometimes people might say uh, transmagnetic stimulation instead of transcranial. Um, I like TMS or transcranial magnetic stimulation because it's a very broad term that just describes the technology as a whole. Um, TMS itself is um, really has two uses. One application is an FDA-approved treatment for depression, as well as a few other mental health disorders and, and many other brain diseases, probably in the near future, um, and also as a tool for studying the brain, which we'll talk a little bit more about um, in today's episode. Wonderful. And then Dr. Toll, if you can jump in and tell us really what transcranial magnetic stimulation really means exactly. Can you walk us through it? Uh, sure, yeah, you're gonna get uh, you know, two sides of the coin here, the, the doctor version and the engineer version. So that's, that's one of our strengths here is we're able to uh, combine the two for a more complete picture. So for the, Perfect. the, the non-clinical engineer telling you about TMS, the TMS, it, it's a machine. Transcranial means through the skull, and it uses a coil about the size of a Kleenex box, and you place that coil uh, next to a person's head right up alongside the scalp, and that, uh, that coil generates a small but powerful magnetic field. And so, you know, if you take uh, one of your fridge magnets and hold it in your hand, you can't sense that magnetic field going through your hand. And it's the, the same thing for TMS. You can't uh, feel or perceive that magnetic field, so it really doesn't hurt. Um, that magnetic field made by the coil is shaped like a little U, and the bottom of that U goes about one inch into the brain. So wherever that, that bottom of the U and the brain intersect, the neurons there are uh, made to fire, they're stimulated, they generate their action potentials. So that's where the, the TMS comes from, transcranial through the skull, 
magnetic uses magnetic field and that field stimulates the brain where it intersects it. And as Andy uh, was saying, there's a um, variation of TMS, repetitive TMS, where you can stimulate that same spot in the brain, you know, 10 to 20 times a second. And that's, that mimics the speed at which the brain uh, fires naturally. So that, that's the, uh, the mechanism of action of this device is to um, mimic the brain's natural activity and get neurons that fire together to wire together. Fantastic. And then that's a really great kind of basic explanation. I'm sure it goes a little bit deeper. So can you venture just a little bit further into the mechanics of how all of that really works? So the, you know, the, the, the neuroscience of what's going on here is that we're all familiar that the, the brain is a hyper-connected network or hundreds of billions of, uh, of neurons and they have orders of magnitude more connections. So all these neurons, they're, uh, I like to think of them as little radio towers where they, they, uh, they send out a message and they send it typically in, in one direction. And so when that, that neuron fires, it's sending out an electrical impulse. Think of that impulse going from the bottom of that tower on up. And so when those action potentials fire, wherever they arrive, they have an effect. And that effect on those neighboring uh, neurons could be to release various neurotransmitters like dopamine, serotonin, um, all, the, all the ones that you're kind of familiar with in the, in the field of depression research. So we're very interested in that cause and effect, the cause being when a, a neuron fires and when they fire in groups, to what is that effect? Are they, uh, are they uh, affecting the release of too little neurotransmitter of some type or too much of another type? And for TMS to work, we need to um, cause the, the brain to fire and sort of strengthen those connections that are, that are uh, under strength in depression. So in TMS, we, we put that coil um, against the scalp and we're targeting a very specific part of the brain, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And what that means is uh, the front of the brain, left side, uh, about uh, six centimeters from, from your eye backwards. So in, in that general area, after all the research we've done using MRI, using EEG, uh, the studies kind of suggest that this is the spot that has the, the most efficacy when you stimulate it over and over again, that is what is going to um, induce the most beneficial change. And the, the way I like to explain it uh, to, to folks is think about if you had to fix a leaning tree in your yard, you're not strong enough to yank that tree from an angle back upright in one day. So what you have to do is tie guidelines to that tree and stake them to the ground. And every day make it a little tighter and a little tighter. And over the days, that tree will start to come back upright. And that, that's sort of the, the approach here in TMS is that we want to, um, we want these connections to become stronger. And you can't do that with a snap of the fingers, but what you can do is cause those uh, areas of the brain that need to fire together to get along, to intentionally uh, stimulate at this specific target, we'll just call it DLPFC, stimulate DLPFC uh, every day for a certain number of days, and you start tightening that wire, tightening that wire, and the, the tree starts to come back upright. And the idea is you, uh, you want to get it to where once a tree stands upright on its own, it's strong enough to stay that way. And so that's the, that's the general concept here is that we are forcing um, 
we are forcing neurons to fire together and therefore wire together in a more uh, typical and beneficial way of connecting with each other. Fantastic. So the magnetic pulse from the machine is going through the skull into the brain, stimulating those neurons and making them fire and uh, increasing or decreasing brain activity? Right. For, for all our electrical engineering nerds uh, like me out there, what we're doing is, you know, when you um, a magnetic field generates an electric field and vice versa. So that, that's uh, that old right hand rule, if you remember that from high school, if you hold your hand around a wire, the, the way your fingers are pointing is the, the shape of the magnetic field, the little donuts that surround that wire. So TMS kind of does the opposite. It uses a magnetic field. And when that intersects the wires of the neuron, it induces an electric field in that, in that axon. So if you would go back to our thinking of these things as little tiny radio towers, when that magnetic field goes perpendicularly at a right angle through that tower, it generates an electric field and makes that neuron fire. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. That was a fantastic explanation. And so Dr. Siz, before we get into the deeper questions of why this works as a treatment for depression and the effects on brain function that we just sort of uh, started to talk about, let's quickly cover the sort of practical pieces. So what does the procedure look like? Is there preparation needed, et cetera? Yeah, so the TMS machine, it, it's a machine. Um, it has a couple different components. Um, you know, there's a box that controls the machine and generates the uh, magnetic field. And then there's a long coil that attaches to that machine to um, deliver the magnetic stimulation to the patient. What some people don't realize or when they think about TMS, it's this machine that's impacting my brain. This must be a really complicated thing. Uh, when in reality, TMS is incredibly simple uh, compared to a lot of medical procedures. Um, it doesn't require any kind of sedation or anesthesia. There's no real recovery time afterwards. Um, people might go back immediately to what they were doing. So we have patients who sometimes come on for lunch break, uh, no real interruption aside from the time that it took there. Um, so we really think of it as this non-invasive, uh, simple outpatient procedure. Perfect, thanks. I think those are just helpful details to know as we talk about all of this. So how does this relate to depression, Dr. Trevetti? So as Andy and Russ mentioned, I think one of the things to take home message is this is actually not as complicated. It's very simple. And the way to think about it is the brain actually in normal human being or even in disease is, is architectured around circuits in the brain. So there are many circuits in the brain responsible for different aspects of how one functions, either when they're, we are just daydreaming as opposed to when they are doing a particular task when somebody talk gives us some stimulus that is negative in terms of emotions or reward processing, et cetera, those actually then bring into function some of the other circuits that are responsible for these activities. And the way to think about it is there's no real typical normal brain. What ends up thinking we need to be thinking about is the circuits in the brain that are responsible for these activities have some dysfunction when somebody has depression or anxiety or PTSD. An example being something called the default mode network. So when somebody is not engaging in any kind of interaction with the rest of the world, but is within their own internal thinking, the default mode network is active. So the brain doesn't sleep when you're not doing something. It all continues to act. And this default mode network is really thinking of it as like a background activity. 
and this functions typically when when you have to do something or you're engaging with somebody something that a circuit really reverts to some other circuit to that needs to function in people who have depression there are real dysfunctions in the shift from default mode network to other circuits and the other circuits may not be functioning as well so that thoughts like rumination or focusing on negative thoughts etc becomes overpowering and that circuit really is not functioning as one would for example in a normal person who doesn't have depression if they hear something negative the brain circuits processing this information evaluate this ascertain that this is there is no danger coming and they move on somebody with depression that continues to be like a broken record that somebody stuck is stuck on it and that really the both what Russ and, and Andy explained with transmagnetic stimulation, you're basically trying to rejigger that circuit so that the circuit starts functioning well. And that may take four weeks, six weeks sometimes, that may take sometimes less time. And that is really the function of doing transmagnetic stimulation. There are other treatments that are under study, for example, deep brain stimulation, which may also do this for deeper structures in the brain. Those treatments are not yet available, but very soon I have to imagine we'll be getting to that point where we will be able to precisely change these circuits. Very similar to what we have done for heart disease. So that for 30, 40 years back when there were arrhythmias in the heart, we didn't really have very good idea of how best to change it except to do large scale in surgical interventions. Now we have pacemakers that can actually monitor this and people live a normal life. I can anticipate we us doing the same thing with brain disorders. Fantastic. And it's great to have an option like TMS that is so simple and non-invasive uh, to go along with the other treatment options. Uh, Dr. Toll, along with what we were just talking about, can you chime in and tell our listeners about your flight analogy? Because I think that one is so great. Yeah, uh, we're going to, you know, hear network used in, in various contexts over and over again, because that's, you know, what the brain is and has uh, implications for how we treat it. So we really need to get this network concept down. And we're already very familiar, whether you know it or not, with all kinds of hyper-connected networks. You know, look at your Facebook friends, look at the, the interstate system and the roads you took to get to work today. And uh, the, the one I like to use a lot is, is air traffic uh, because it, the, the variations in frequency are a little easier to grasp. So if you look at long-range connections in uh, the American air traffic system, the, the flights from LAX to JFK, uh, those aren't taken off every five minutes. That is a long range nonstop flight. So it has to travel at low frequency, you know, three, three or four a day. So long range, low frequency. But if you look at your local commuter flights, um, they have a lot higher frequency. So if you went to DFW and wanted to hop a flight to Austin, San Antonio or Houston, those are local connections. And you could probably catch one of those every 15 minutes or so any given day. So you have a short range uh, distance to travel, high frequency. And so when you combine, you know, these network overlays on top of each other, there, there are different flights at different frequencies, and they come together to form this one large network. And they, there's uh, sub-networks for that. Like, just look at the American Airlines company itself. Itself, it's its own network. It's got its hubs, and it has its daily flights. And so does uh, Delta, you know, with a hub in Atlanta. So you have hubs in different places 
uh, of America for different networks. And when you stack all these on top of each other, you get the big super network uh, that we call air traffic. And in this metaphor, that's the, the brain's total connectivity. So we can understand that the interactions of these airline companies and their various flight schedules can, can vary day to day based on the weather, based on um, other factors at play, but that network responds to what's going on in its environment and kind of balances itself out naturally. But then uh, if you think about what would happen if there's a jet fuel shortage uh, suddenly, then only the most necessary flights are going to keep going. You know, perhaps some of those those long-range connections get reduced to only one or two a day, and a lot of those regional connections uh, dry up because the you know there's only so much uh, support, only so much fuel to to support the network this time, and that's what you know you can kind of think of happening in depression that there's a neurotransmitter shortage in some cases that there's insufficient uh, serotonin or insufficient dopamine. So if you don't have the the jet fuel to keep the flights in the air, then there's going to be inefficient connections, lower connections, more rerouting, you know, more layovers. Uh, and we can, uh, that's a little easier to, um, you know, to, to visualize. We, we know what a layover feels like and it, it, it can be similar in the brain when there's this type of, uh, of shortage going on. So that, that is how you would depress the American air travel network is to dry up the fuel and that's how uh, depression uh, can be thought of to manifest in the brain as a, an undersupply of the necessary fuel to keep connections at their, at their optimal state. Awesome. Thank you. I love a good analogy to simplify things. I hope our listeners appreciate that as well. So Dr. Trevetti, just really quickly, can you run through those different networks really briefly and just uh, tell us how they may relate to depression? Absolutely. So I, I think I want us to, again, step back and realize that while it is, our brain is a fascinating organ, there's a lot to be learned, but we still already know that most of brain function that we see in routine daily life and even in disease revolves around about six, seven, six, seven networks in the brain, ranging from the visual network that is responsible for uh, visual activity Somatosensory, somatomotor network that is involved in moving the body and physical feeling, uh, the dorsal and attention network that is involved, very important actually about what you feel is important to you. And this is an important network, for example, in depression. You may be so listless that you don't actually think of things around you that normally would be important, but you don't feel that. And therefore that dysfunction in the dorsal attention network could be something we may have to target in some people. Not everybody has that. So one thing we've always recognized is that all human beings are not exactly identical. We know this from a lot of medical illnesses, including depression. So we have to pay attention to these individual net, uh, networks. The other is a visual attention or salience network. And this is again, another important network because whether you care about things or not is something that this network is associated with that can have a critical role in depression. It is the prime feature of apathy and dysthymia. So this is a very important network that we may have to target in some people. The limbic network, everybody knows about it. It's involved with uh, basic emotions. Uh, and this can go either way as a possible feature of manic episodes or bipolar depression, 
or it could resemble more of the same issue as an under-connected salience network. The executive net, uh, network focuses on tasks and the default mode network we've talked about extensively, but it really involves not only daydreaming, but your normal, if you close your eyes and just pay attention, become mindful, you would recognize the kinds of variations in your thinking and your emotions and feelings that you experience. And in some ways, if you remember, some people actually do very well with mindfulness-based therapies because they learn how to be able to mindfully evaluate what is going on in their internal thinking and be able to modify it. So any of these networks actually could have dysfunction. Transmagnetic stimulation right now is focusing initially on the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex for its stimulation, but we have now looked at many other components of the brain to try to change these networks and, and how best to precisely match people with their network dysfunctions is really the work of our center. We are doing that, others are doing it. And I think more of this is only going to make it more precise and more beneficial so that we don't have to do trial and error process in doing these things. Well, it's always really interesting to learn more about the brain and I'm excited that uh, you are doing research to figure out how to better target some of these treatments as well. So speaking of that treatment portion, Dr. Siz, uh, we now know fully how the brain regions and networks are connected and how connectivity can affect depression. So can you tell us how does the TMS treatment improve the brain function associated with depression? So sometimes I like to use an analogy of liposuction versus exercise. Um, both are used to lose weight. Um, and to some extent, they both work, um, at least in the short term. Uh, you know, 100 years ago, we used to do something kind of like liposuction for the brain, lobotomies, where we remove parts of the brain. And boy, does that change brain function and mood and all sorts of things, but it's not a great long-term solution. Uh, so TMS to me is a little bit more like exercise. It's a little bit slower. It's not just a light switch that you flip on in one day and you're done. Um, typically the way TMS therapy works is that um, you'll have uh, somewhere between 20 and 35 sessions over you know, four to eight weeks. Um, each session, you're stimulating that same area of the brain somewhere between 600 and 3,000 times, depending on the type of TMS that you're doing. And when it's getting stimulated, we're thinking about it as practicing, or just like if you're doing uh, exercise, you're training muscles, you're training that area of the brain. Uh, and not only that specific area we're targeting, but everywhere that that area is connected to. Um, so the pathways that form a network for that area of the brain. And the more that that area is stimulated, the more it's practicing or it's getting better at using that network. Uh, and so it's the, the stimulation itself is really kind of nudging the brain to practice that area and areas that that brain is connected to in, in as far as networks go. Uh, Great. And um, how do you choose the location of the neurons to activate with TMS? Yeah, so that's uh, an important question. We're still trying to figure out the best areas to do that. Um, you know, the initial research studies with TMS were very influential. It basically took their best guess of the area of the brain that's probably gonna be underactive in many people with depression and tried TMS therapy on that area. Turns out it worked well for a good number of patients, including those who had not benefited from medication or talk therapies. Of course, not all patients benefited from that therapy. Uh, there are, and there are many possible reasons for this. 
one idea that's really hot right now is that some patients just need a higher dose. And it's just like how some patients might need a larger dose of any given medication or more talk therapy sessions, some people may need a higher dose of TMS. I think when TMS was first being investigated, people were a little cautious about the dose. You know, after all, we're stimulating people's brains, so let's err on the side of a lower dose. But recent research has suggested that some people could benefit from five times the normal TMS dose we use right now. Hmm. Another idea though, is that there are different areas of the brain that need stimulation for different patients. Uh, as Russ mentioned, the first and most widely type of TMS therapy targets the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. But there are newer forms of TMS that are in development or one other one that was recently approved called deep TMS, where as the name suggests, it's targeting some deeper areas of the brain. So the current thinking is that one isn't necessarily more effective than other um, in terms of brain regions um, when you look across thousands of patients, but for any single patient, the area of the brain we stimulate could make a big, big difference. But Andy, it is exciting that this is a new option sure. and we are now beginning to get increasing use of this in the community. One of the things to help people understand, maybe provide context to it is still early. Uh, by comparison, we have thousands of randomized controlled trials for medications, and this is still early. So I think we shouldn't take this, uh, uh, the questions you are raising about whether we know the dose, et cetera, as a rate limiting step. On the other hand, it most likely is just an opportunity because we will learn more as we will proceed further. Absolutely. To me, the thing about TMS that's really the most exciting is that we are so early and we're already um, getting so much out of it. Okay, so Dr. Sis, if someone is interested in doing TMS therapy uh, from a patient perspective, what does that look like? Is it covered by insurance? Is it safe? Can you sort of uh, let us know how to go about that? For sure. So as you might expect, it, you know, it's modulating the brain, so it's a little bit more complicated than just picking up a $4 fluoxetine prescription from Walmart, um, you know, we typically have specialized treatment centers for TMS. Um, so not all psychiatrists and certainly primary care clinics don't offer it, um, you know, places that you might get treatment for depression. Otherwise, um, you know, academic centers like UT Southwestern offer it as part of our outpatient clinic. There are a variety of clinics that specialize in TMS uh, throughout the city. And so typically what you need to do is find a psychiatrist who offers TMS therapy. So if you're currently having your depression managed by your primary care doctor, you might have a conversation with them about, boy, you know, the medications or other treatments I've tried have really not been that helpful. Is TMS a good option? And they may refer you to one of these clinics that offers TMS therapy. Um, the same would be the case if you're already seeing a psychiatrist. They may need to refer you to a specialized psychiatrist that offers TMS. If you are pursuing TMS therapy, that um, TMS psychiatrist will kind of want to review a few things with you. Um, certainly your medical history to understand if TMS is safe. Um, the good news is it's safe for most patients. There's very few side effects of it and the medical risks of it are actually quite low. Um, I often argue that it's lower than most of our medications in terms of side effects because it's a, such a direct and focal treatment. But there are a few exceptions, um, people with significant brain abnormalities or magnetic metal in the head. And unfortunately, it's only approved in adults right now. So adolescents, um, it's not a, a viable treatment option outside of research. 
you know, so we think of uh, TMS as stimulating those areas of the brain, um, but it's a time-limited treatment, um, and it's unclear exactly what happens in the months or year after a TMS treatment session. We know that the brain changes when it's depressed and not depressed, and um, it's possible for some people that the uh, brain will kind of revert back to the depressed state after stopping TMS treatment. Uh, for some people, that might be faster or slower or, or may or may not happen. But unlike medications, which we know to be tremendously helpful for preventing relapse of depression to continue taking in some cases once you're well, TMS is, is currently a time-limited course. You receive you know, 20 to 35 sessions over the course of a few weeks, and then you stop. Does the insurance cover it? Yeah, um, it depends. So insurance doesn't like to cover it because unlike a $4 drug, it can cost thousands of dollars um, to deliver. So insurance typically will cover it for patients who have failed multiple medications since the last time they felt well. Often they'll also require that someone's had a, a reasonable course of psychotherapy on top of it. Different insurance companies vary exactly how many medications and the requirement of psychotherapy, but typically something between three and four medications is what insurance requires. It doesn't mean patients wouldn't benefit from TMS uh, without trying medications, but uh, that's what insurance has decided is reasonable. One final point, doctor says we need to make so that people are aware of this issue and so, so we don't can really leave things unclear. Our field in psychiatry and especially in depression has this tendency of debating whether it's medication or psychotherapy or whether it's magnetic stimulation or medication. Can you quickly give a short answer about how you think about a treatment plan if a patient comes to you has had some treatments that didn't work, how would you start thinking about it and have a discussion with the patient? Yeah, um, the discussions I usually have with my patients is that a, a treatment plan is usually not one thing. Uh, there are multiple components that go into any treatment plan. Uh, you know, for some people, it may be TMS is really the, the focal point of it, um, just like for some people, fluoxetine is enough. Uh, but kind of all cards are on the table. And in particularly with difficult to treat or treatment resistant depression, we really need to be looking at a plan that has multiple sides to it. So TMS plus talk therapy. And there's some research to suggest that those actually have a synergistic effect when used together. Um, or TMS and medications. Um, for some patients, the combination is really what's valuable. Whereas other patients choose TMS because medications have not only been unsuccessful, but poorly tolerated. Um, but that doesn't mean just because the medications weren't helpful and you're getting TMS, that TMS should be the only part of your treatment plan. Um, you know, we might in that patient uh, make sure to do psychotherapy or things like exercise. And this debate or the, the dilemma is not unique to depression. This is something we deal with, with difficult to treat diabetes or difficult to treat rheumatoid arthritis or congestive heart failure. So this is the reality of all medical illnesses. And I think we get into this unfortunate debate with depression because of stigma and bias. Mm but that in reality, every patient should be offered a number of these options and then decide the best for any given patient. Absolutely. Now we'll just shift gears for a quick moment. Uh, TMS is a treatment as we've learned all about, but it can also be used as a tool for discovery uh, for brain mapping. So Dr. Toll will quickly tell us about that. Uh, sure, you know, when they decided, like uh, Andy was telling us about why do we stimulate at DLPFC? That was you know, a very good educated guess. 
uh, based on a lot of MRI research. So the, the better way uh, I think that we can approach this moving on is through uh, a game of Marco Polo that we're all kind of familiar with as summer is winding down. But uh, if you aren't, aren't familiar with that game, this where you jump in the pool, one guy has their eyes closed, he yells out Marco, all the buddies in the pool yell out Polo, and you have to kind of guess uh, based on where you're hearing them, where they're at. So if you put an EEG cap on someone and give them a single TMS stimulation at various parts around the brain, that stimulation is the Marco, and the EEG picks up the Polo of the Marco asks, from this stimulation, who's connected to this brain region? And using the EEG, you can get that answer. So instead of just using the DLPFC, it's going to be the target we use for everybody. Uh, that you know the angle or the uh, eventual goal we want to reach is being able to throw an EEG cap on, do a little bit of mapping, and find the optimal target for that person. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, I'm looking forward to learning more about that research. So when you have updates with that, please do let us know and we'll have you back on to talk about that. I want to thank all of you for providing our listeners with such fantastic information about TMS as a treatment. Uh, I think at this point we have covered all of our listener questions. Do you have any final comments? I, I think as Russ mentioned, more exciting work is coming with TMS, especially combining with EEG MRI to try to precisely target where and when to, to stimulate the brain. And more patients are very likely to benefit as we go along. Well, we can't wait to see what's next once again. Thank you all. That's it for this episode of Brainstorm Decoding Depression with your hosts from the Center for Depression Research and Clinical Care. Be sure to follow us on social media at UTSW underscore CDRC so you don't miss our episode announcements. If you have suggestions for topics or questions you'd like answered, we have a new email address just for this podcast, decodingdepressionpodcast at utsouthwestern.edu. Thanks for listening and see you next time. 